We are now dealing with the third stage of the return from the exile, the stage that was led by Nehemiah. You will remember that we are dealing in this third stage with something fuller than the two previous stages. The first stage was to do with the house of God, that is the recovery of truth in practice, everything to do with the house of God. The second stage is all to do with spiritual character. And the third stage is all to do with the wall. But we have found in the third stage that there has been a remarkable combination of the first two stages. All the characteristics that we found in the first two stages are now, as it were, brought together, welded together in the last and we, you remember, have found that in the last stage, these walls that it all deals with, all the more remarkable because most of Jerusalem was not yet built. So they were building walls around uh, uh, really just the temple and a few houses, if those were permanent. Uh, we have found that these walls symbolized the testimony of Jesus. And you will remember that last week we dwelt upon that we asked ourselves the question and dwelt upon the answer, what really is the testimony of Jesus? We speak so much about the testimony of Jesus. What really is the testimony of Jesus? Remember, we said this, that the testimony of Jesus, in, as the Holy Spirit typifies it here, is simply the welding together of two distinct First is the house of God. That always comes first. The Holy Spirit has put that first. And the second thing is spiritual character. Now you can have spiritual character outside of the house of God. You can have spiritual character in any place. And spiritual character or godliness is great gain anywhere. Great gain for the people concerned, but not great gain to God. God doesn't need our godliness. God is not in need of our righteousness. God is quite sovereign and quite sufficient in that way. He doesn't need us in that sense at all. Therefore, if we are godly and righteous anywhere, that's great gain to ourselves. We shall never lose it. Uh, it will certainly, in the end, be uh, judged and uh, rewarded as such. But godliness on certain ground is great gain to God. Because it is providing him with the, the, the object of his eternal yearning. When God gets godliness on certain ground, it provides him with the material for his eternal home. So the testimony of Jesus is not a personal thing, and it's not an individual thing. It is not a question of ministry, nor is it a question of groups of Christians anywhere. The testimony of Jesus is when the, is, is entrusted when the Lord has a people on certain clearly defined grounds and when he is producing a certain spiritual character in them. When those two things are brought together and welded together, you have the testimony of Jesus. You must note the order. The walls enclosed a temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God. The walls enclosed a city, and the city is the heart of a nation. So you have these two distinct things in the first and the second stage kept apart, clearly, distinctively set out in two clear-cut stages now brought together in the end. That is the testimony of Jesus. And you remember last week we dwelt uh, in reviewing what we had done a month ago. We looked at the first three things to do with the testimony of Jesus, the recovery of the testimony. It is possible, therefore, you see, to be on church ground and to have some building for church without necessarily the testimony being entrusted. The candlestick of pure gold is in the midst of those children of God gathered into Christ 
on the ground of their locality. We find that in the beginning of, of the book of Revelation. When you have that, and you have a spiritual character, which the Lord is continually judging, you have the, the candlestick in its place. Understand? But they can still be there, and the spiritual character can go, and the candlestick can be removed. That's another problem that we can't deal with now. Um, we notice three things about the testimony of Jesus, the recovery of the testimony of Jesus. The first was that holding the testimony of Jesus is a matter of very real travail and of very pertinent discernment, penetrating discernment. On the one side, a suffering that knocks us about so that we can't be arrogant and presumptuous and superior. On the other side, a penetratingly keen, razor-edged discernment that gets right through this sentimental blush that people call love, which isn't really love at all, but gets right down to the root of the matter and, and defines clearly what is wrong. You can never get to the root of any trouble until your diagnosis is absolutely hitting the point. When you've got a correct diagnosis, you can do something. Otherwise, you're prodding around, messing around. Many Christians, because they're frightened, of diagnosing a, a situation clearly and discerningly are prodding around activities wasted, energy wasted, service wasted, lives wasted, because they're prodding around, trying, as it were, because they're afraid. On the one side, there must be a travail. On the other side, there must be a razor edge discernment that gets right to the root of the problem and is not afraid to stand alone with that on this question of what to touch and what not to touch. Nehemiah got right down to the ruin. He saw the ruin. He looked into the ruin. He wept over the ruin. He mourned over the ruin. He had a broken heart, but he saw the ruin. And he was not afraid to clearly define the ruin and the rubbish that has got to be removed. So in the recovery of the testimony, you can't be held up by anything that is sheer and mere sentiment. You've got to know the ruin. You've got to see the rubbish. You've got to be able to remove the stuff that's got to be removed, and you've got to get, be able to get down to what is the real foundation and build with the proper materials. That's the first thing. The second thing was that there was a great harmony in the recovery of the testimony. For all these people, there were aristocratic ladies, there were peasant ladies, there were perfumers, goldsmiths, silversmiths, and the rest. All the different people, all different classes, different types, different backgrounds, but they were all brought together and each given a place. That is necessary. And the vigilance that was needed over their fellowship together. That was the second thing. We will not spend any time on that. The third thing we noted was that there was a great conflict and triumph in this question of the recovery of the testimony. It's going to be bitterly contested. From every side, from every angle, things are going to be said, things are going to be done, mud's going to be flung, everything possible to try and get you down to talking, trying to get you to take it on trying to get you to stop the work and all get turned in as you clear up the mess. But you saw quite clearly that uh, through all there are eight, eight definite uh, times of opposition recorded uh, in this book of Nehemiah. But it never stopped the work. Why didn't it stop the work? Because of the kind of character that God has produced by the Holy Spirit in the leaders. Not one of them would take it on. Not one of them would move alone. Everyone stood like a man, together, in the Lord. The result was that they could write letters four times, send messengers with personal letters, send prophets to give a word of the Lord to them that all sounded so very good, and all the rest of it didn't move the They refused to take it on. Sometimes they answered, but with the least words that were possible, with all good courtesy and love to do, but nevertheless with absolute firmness, with absolute clarity, they refused at any point to come down from the building on the wall. And the result was that the walls were completed. The contest didn't finish, finish with the completion of the walls. The enemy started, we shall find out tonight, immediately to ally the forces of disaffection and faction. As soon as the walls were completed, that was not the end. The devil didn't give up. It says many of the nobles, and we shall find out that the high priest one of them, started writing letters to Tobiah, who had led uh, much of the trouble, and gradually a kind of alliance formed underground, which was to become a great thorn in the side 
of Nehemiah uh, until at last that we shall find the last chapter of this book which was thoroughly dealt with. Well, that's what we took last week. Now, tonight, we come to another point. We have seen that the walls have been completed. Nothing could stop the completion of those walls. The conflict raged over them, but it didn't stop the completion of the walls. The reason was that in the people who were building, there was a meekness and a dependence upon the Lord and a fellowship together and an utter lack of self-interest. It is an interesting thing that in chapter 7 of Nehemiah and verse 4, you will find that although the walls were completed, they set guards around. It says very few people were living in Jerusalem and, and it says actually there were no houses built. Well, we know from the previous records that there were some houses, but we take it therefore that they must have been not very permanent homes people had marked out plots perhaps that they wished to have. But it revealed a lack of self-interest. They were prepared, many of them, to build those walls uh, without any real self-interest. That was the root, the heart, of, their, of the Lord being able, as it were, to carry them through all the battles. Now, you can always be certain that when any backsliding starts in any of our hearts, although we like to blame it onto others and like to always um, as it were, find some reason for it elsewhere, and furthermore, we can legitimately always somehow attach some blame to others and find a reason outside of ourselves. No one has ever that blame without there being some ground inside. That's why the Lord Jesus was able to say at once, as the prince of this world cometh, but he has nothing in him. Let him come. He hasn't got a foothold in the Lord. But of course, that's not so with us so often. We've given ground to the enemy, and he's got a foothold. Self-interest. It's so often this foothold Satan plays upon, until at last he gets a hold. Now this evening we come from verse 5 of chapter 7, <coughs> to the end of, of chapter 7, and we come to a very remarkable thing. We find here that this is the exact same register as we find in Ezra chapter 2. There's not a, a word different. So that in this one book, we have two chapters taken up with duplication, which is a most remarkable fact. And for those of you who know anything about the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit compiles the Word of God, you will know quite clearly that when the Holy Spirit duplicates something, he does it for a reason. Nothing is ever duplicated in the Word of God without a reason. Now, why have we got the exact same register of taking up something like 70 verses, approximately, twice repeated within a few chapters of each other? In Ezra chapter 2, in Nehemiah chapter 7. The same register given twice. In fact, Nehemiah refers back to it, if you look. In verse 5, it tells you that he refers right back to that genealogy of those that came up with Zerubbabel. He clearly tells us uh, what uh, register he's looking at. What do we learn from this? Well, the fourth thing that we learn about the recovery of the testimony is this. The necessity of continual vigilance over and pure pedigree in the holy of the testimony of Jesus. I will repeat that again. The fourth thing we learn about the recovery of the testimony of Jesus is the necessity of continual vigilance over and pure pedigree in the holding of the testimony of Jesus. Now, why does the Holy Spirit emphasize this so strongly by giving us this register twice? Will you note the two times that it comes? The first time this register appears, it is to do with building the house of God. The second time this register appears, it is to do with the recovery of the testimony of Jesus. Mark carefully that no attention is drawn to any register in the second stage. Only in the first and the third stage is our attention drawn to this very important register. 
by which everyone could determine their pedigree and therefore determine their right to responsibility. Let us make it absolutely clear right away now, this did not determine their right to a portion of the land. It determined their right to responsibility. And that's where we're going to learn our fourth great lesson tonight in this whole question of this book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, we have found that the Holy Spirit is obviously, uh, obviously feels that this matter of pedigree, as we call it, spiritual pedigree, is of vital, of paramount importance when it comes to the question of responsibility. Why does the Holy Spirit give no genealogy, and although there must have been such registers, why does he draw our attention? Why does he not draw our attention to a register in the second stage? Because it is to do with spiritual character. You can have spiritual character in exile. You can have spiritual character in Persia. You can have spiritual character in Babylon. You can have spiritual character anywhere in the dispersion. You can have it anywhere. You don't need a register for that. That spiritual life, and God, because he is father of his people, because he is the father of his family, has given us life and will develop that life as much as he can. We shall find that out in the book of Esther. No mention of the name of God, no mention of the things of God, no mention of the house of God, no mention of the land of God, no mention even of God's name. And yet, spiritual character. See? No need of a register. What did Esther need a register for? She was queen. The Mordecai need a register for? They didn't need a register. You only needed a register when you got back to the land. But when it came to participating in the building of the house of God, or when it came to participating in the building of the walls of Jerusalem, you needed a register. You needed to prove your pedigree. That is very important. If there is one thing that we as a company started off on a weak footing, it was in this question of responsibility. I will speak about that in a moment. How we, were, how we have, have been confused at the beginning over, our, over, over this whole question of responsibility. We started off on the wrong foot. And it's only now that we're beginning to see that we've got to get onto the other foot in the right way. Now, now what does, does this chapter really teach us? Or shall I say, put it this way, what do these two chapters, Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, really teach us? They teach us simply this. Let me just tell you exactly what it means. Before Nehemiah, the governor, repopulated, or even before he, he would consider repopulating Jerusalem with inhabitants, he insisted on having a register to ensure pure blood. He insisted. Now Jerusalem stands, as we have already said, for the testimony of Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing was this. Nehemiah, before they would settle this whole question of the courses of the priests and the courses of the Levites in the house of God, insisted on having that register out and making sure that every priest operating, every Levite operating in the house of God had a clear, pure pedigree behind it. So when it comes to living in Jerusalem, or when it comes to working within the house of God, Nehemiah insists on a pedigree. He insists on it. And if you will look at verse 61 to 65, you will find a rather shocking thing. I believe we drew attention to it in Ezra 2. Here there are some good and seemingly faithful people, and they could not prove their pedigree, and they were put out. They were not, on the one hand, allowed to live within Jerusalem, and on the other hand, they were put out of the people. 
Now just sit back and think for a moment. Think what it would mean. These men have come all the way back from exile. These people believe that they were utterly faithful. They have come, they have left everyone else in the exile. And now how were they rewarded? When they got back to the land, they found that a man called Nehemiah, a man called Ezra, and a man called Nehemiah, they get up and say, we're very, very sorry, we can't, you can't prove your pedigree, you're out. We're very sorry about it. Very sorry. You can live with us. You can participate in the good of the land. You can participate in the services of our God. But you cannot have any responsibility given to you or entrusted to you whatsoever. Now, isn't that a severe thing when you really think about it? It's a severe thing. It's a terrible thing. After all these people have come back, was it their fault that somehow or other they, 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 were, they were lost? Now, why does the Holy Spirit take hold of this so severely, so severely, and handle these people so seemingly harshly? Because he is teaching us a tremendous lesson they may have been perfectly good men. They may have served well in exile. And this is the, the hardness of it. They could still serve well if they went back to the exile. If those priests had said, all right then, if you don't want us here, we'll pack our bags and go home. We'll go back. We'll go back to Babylon. They could have gone back to Babylon. You know, they would have been, they would have been welcomed in the first synagogue. And they could have operated and functioned as priests and Levites in the exile. But Nehemiah wouldn't let them function and operate as priests and Levites in Jerusalem or in the house of God or in the land. Why two things totally different? Why should the priests be allowed to operate there in exile if they are not allowed to operate in the land? Do you see now what we're getting at? You see there are two clearly defined realms that Esther will teach us very clearly clearly defined realms. And it seemingly means that God deals with us in one realm altogether differently to the way he deals with us in the other. He will allow certain things, he will bless certain things, he will use certain things in one realm. But he will not do it in the other. We come right up against a, a beta. We can fight it, we can talk about it. We, it, it can cause great irritation, but we know we're up against a beta in the other realm. We cannot behave as we did in that realm, in this realm. You see? We can't just, as it were, do what we did there, here. We can't against the divine people. The Holy Spirit immediately says, no. It is a question of pedigree. We don't talk about pedigree in that realm. But here it's a question of pedigree. And we want to know the pe your pedigree. Well now, we have to see that very, very clearly. For this reason, we have to see that in recovery there is a necessity at each stage of it of pure, clear, uncontaminated history. Can I put it another way? It is not so much a question of actual mixture, actual mixture, as a question of clarity. Have you got that? Those men may not have had a taint of foreign blood in their, in their history. They may have been as pure as Nehemiah himself, but they couldn't prove it. And because they couldn't prove it, they were not clear. They were deemed unclean. What does it mean? Not clear. Not clear. So they couldn't be used. They couldn't be brought in. They couldn't be given responsibility. They had to stay out. Do you see that? Now, you see, those men may have been good men. They may have been moral men. They may have been upright men. They may have been a, a good sight better than many of the others. But they were put out. Now, what does that really basically teach us? It te teaches us this. If they are not clear, or we are not clear about their pedigree, then there can be no responsibility given to them whatsoever. They may be obviously partners with us in a common life. They may obviously be one with us in the Lord Jesus. The distinction is not made 
between life and his made over responsibility. Now this is the point that we have to understand so utterly clearly if we're going to understand principles of the last days. As we have said, Ezra and Nehemiah contain principles of the last days. Just in the same way that one or two Timothy and Titus contain principles for the last days. What are these principles? Here is one of these principles. We are absolutely one with all the people of God. Anyone who will come onto, the, onto what we call church ground, we are absolutely one with in a more obvious outward way. And an even more obvious and outward way. But because we're all found on church ground does not mean that responsibility can be given to anyone. We have got to be absolutely Absolutely clear as to a person's pedigree. This is where we start off on the wrong step. We have made a mixture and a confusion. On the one side, there are tremendous emphasis upon one life. Not truth, but life. Life is the thing. We must stress life. We are one because of the life. Absolutely one. And that is absolutely so. But that does not mean for one single moment that therefore we can give responsibility to anyone, anybody. It could mean quite the opposite. How then should we determine this question of responsibility? It is a question of clarity, that's all. You see, they wanted to be absolutely sure that there was no Egyptian influence, no Edomite influence, no Moabite influence, no Ammonite influence, no Tyrian influence, no Babylonian no Persian influence. They wanted to be absolutely sure that the people taking responsibility were absolutely 100% clear. If they were, the whole thing was open. Responsibility was open. Otherwise, they must wait until a priest stood up with Judah and the who could determine once and for all whether they were really clear or not. This is the whole question of responsibility. My brother Lee said to us, a shock so many, uh, that he said, we are one, we, we accept everyone at the Lord's table, we will refuse no one who is a believer at the Lord's table, that is our testimony to our one life in Christ. But we reserve the right in administration and in ministry to, to narrow it down to those that we know are clear. This is an end time principle an end-time principle. You can't have any Tom, Dick, and Harry just coming in in these days and just hand everything over to them as people think we should. You can't just throw in your lot with any. There are these two clear realms. We are one. They are seen it. We are one. But we are one on certain grounds. We are absolutely one, as they could have said in those days, with those that are in exile. But we will not touch them. We will not go back. They come back to us, but we will not go back to them. We are one now. And when all the offerings were offered in the house of God, what were they for? They were for the twelve tribes of Israel. Although very few had ever returned. They were for the lot. It was always for everyone, for all. It was inclusive, never exclusive. For all those that had come back to the land, it was more practical than that. It was much more practical. They were there to participate in the privileges of being actually on the land, within the land. They were in living touch with the testimony. They were in living touch with the house of God. But as far as responsibility went, no one living on that ground could be given. Now do you see the complete difference between that and the beginning? In David's day and Solomon's day, there was no talk about this. No one talked about genealogies, making clear. No one talked about it. In the New Testament, at the beginning of the church, there was no talk about it. Now, here we come to a very, very important point. There was no talk in the beginning of the New Testament, uh, at the beginning of the church, of this question. The Father was cursed, he was free. We were all not only one in the Lord Jesus, but there was clear that since those days of tremendous amount of heaven, the whole thing's gone into exile. The whole thing's fallen away. The whole thing has become a terrible mixture of Babylon and Egypt. So that now the, the, it's woven into the very fabric of those that are the Lord. Into their very being, into their very context. 
very atmosphere, the whole thing has seeped into it. Now, why did Paul write 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? Have you ever thought? He expressly tells us that it's for the end time when there shall be a great falling away. What does he say? He says, no man can be an elder unless, 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 unless. No man can be a deacon unless, unless, unless. What is he doing? Is he giving us, as many people think, qualifications? No. He's saying simply this one thing. We've got to be clear on a pure pedigree. No responsibility. You know how he says it? He says that in a great vessel, there are vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor. Let a man purge himself, he says, of those vessels of dishonor. A terrible thing to say of other of the lost people. That's what he says. Purge himself of vessels of dishonor. Let him stand they are around him, but let him stand pure and clear before the Lord, with a pure and clear pedigree before God. He says the foundation of God stands of sure. Isn't that wonderful? The foundation of God stands of sure. And let him that nameth the name of the Lord depart from it. Do you see? All those three letters are all to do with the kind of pedigree we've got to look for. What kind of family? What is his wife like? What are his children like? How does he behave himself at work? Do you see all these things with his pity? Where does he stand in the house of God? What does Paul say? That a man, I have written these things, that a man may know how he ought to behave himself in the house of the living God. Do you see? It's a question of responsibility. The question of responsibility. Another question of life. Paul never said divide them. Paul never said leave them. If they are on church ground, you can't leave them. You've got to stay with them. But he said, don't you become contaminated. That pedigree's got to be kept before the Lord. Well, there's a tremendous amount there which no doubt raise a lot of questions. But you will see straight away that it is not a question of the general life of the nation. It is not a question of its general life. All who are on this ground are participants in the general life. It is a question of responsibility. Not a question of life, a question of responsibility. The distinction is made not over life, but over responsibility. That is the thing that we've got to take on. In the end, we have got to be absolutely clear on this question of responsibility. We, as a people, have got to come to it. We've got to come to it where we've got the courage, and it takes courage, little courage, to be able to stand on this question. It needs courage, but it, it, it takes a man to about Nehemiah and Ezra and people like that had that courage. You see how they, how they, they as it were, handle this kind of situation. Well, there we are. That's one great point. And what is the last uh, great point? Well, actually, two more, but the very last one's a, a small one. What is the last big point that we learn in this question of the third stage of the recovery? Well, it is from chapter 8, and it goes right through chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. A very big portion. Now, what is it? What is the lesson we learn? Well, I have put it like this. In recovery, we must have a thorough instruction in an understanding of and a, com a complete committal to the Word of God and our history. Now, I want you to take very careful note of this. I will say it again. In recovery, we must have a thorough instruction in, in an understanding of, an understanding of, and a complete committal to the Word of God and our history. Now, let's look at this. Let's take these chapters. Chapter 8, verse 1. The first day of the seventh month, the great conference. It was one month after the wars had been completed. One month had now elapsed. The genealogies, the register had been taken out, things had been sorted out clearly. Evidently, it was a little more clear. Now, a big conference was called, a period of big conference. This big conference lasted, in a rather scattered way, over at least a month. 
the people of God came from far north and the far south, they journeyed up to Jerusalem for this great conference. It was a tremendous affair if you look at it. The first thing you will find is this. And I, it's lo- really rather lovely the way that uh, the writer has put it. Uh, the law was read distinctly and the sense was given. Well, that's not always so. The law was read distinctly and the sense was given. Now, you see, if you look at verse 8, they read in the book, in the law, God distinctly, they gave the sense so that they understood the reading. But isn't that wonderful? The other word is a technical word, by the way, used in the Persian Empire for for reading a document, an official document in Aramaic, and it being translated at the same time to the vernacular of people concerned. So it may well be that there were some who just didn't understand Hebrew, and as it was read in Hebrew distinctly and clearly, so it was also interpreted to those who didn't understand. And the Levites went throughout the whole crowd, making absolutely sure that everyone understood. Do you see? Anyone who didn't understand, they put their hand up or something like that. And the Levite came and said, well, this is what it means. See, this is exactly what that means. Now, isn't that wonderful? Never in the history of the people of God has such a conference ever taken place. For the most part, it was a little handful that understood and the rest were left in ignorance. They just enjoyed the fun, you know, and the fellowship. But this time, it was absolutely brought down to each one so that they, they got the understanding. Now, at the first day of the month, the law was read to everyone. They even spent most of the day reading. Then it says, if you look carefully, in verse 13 and following, then they had all the leaders together. The priests, the Levites, and the rulers of the fathers' houses. They all came together for a great, uh, shall we put it this way, a great conference, an inner conference of responsible leadership. See? And here's the interesting point. If you read all those that following paragraph, what happens? Ezra and the scribes, the Levites, they teach those leaders deeply, deeply, of the whole question of the Word of God and their history. And what is the immediate result? All the leaders say, well, well, do you know what we should be doing now? It's the seventh month. We should have the Feast of Tabernacles. And we are not keeping it. Well, they said, let's look, and they started to look, they found it exactly, and he said, today, that Joshua, the son of Nun, there's never been a feast of the tabernacles kept quite like that. They told everyone, they said, we've understood the word, we've really understood the word and our history. Now you see what was beginning to happen? Ezra had it on his heart, as William Tyndale did, to see that the poorest and the most ignorant person understood the word of God and understood their history. So, he got the leaders together, he instructed them. Then they had seven-day festival, and uh, an eighth day, a solemn assembly, lasting the whole of the eighth day. And every single day, they read the law. (coughs) And every day, the same method, as it were, was kept. So that you see, by this time, for the first time in the history of the people of God, a new sense of the meaning of the law, of the word of God, and the, their history dawned upon them. And on the 24th day of the month, it reached its climax. A whole day given. Everyone gathered together. Uh, if you read carefully, it's rather, rather lovely that there's a little small aside that wooden pulpit had been specially built for certain steps, uh, up which Ezra went, which was quite a new innovation, it never has such a thing. Uh, and so they particularly said that Ezra was in the sight of all the people. Quite a new innovation of the people. And read quite clearly to them all. Then on this 24th day, what did they do? They spent the whole daylight hours. The first quarter of, of, of the daylight hours they spent in reading the Word of God and giving it under uh, its meaning. The last half of the day they spent in confession and worship. Three hours of one three hours of the other. What a tremendous thing it all really is. It was the climax. And the whole people, the whole people, waited on God in contrition and repentance, humbly, in the light of His Word and their history. There's never been a day like it. 
It says the people wept. Do you know what, what Ezra had to do? He had to tell everyone, don't tell him not to weep. The first day, he's going to tell him not to weep. They must all give presents to everyone else, and everyone must be happy and joyful. But on the 24th day, of course, they all did weep. And that was the day when they put earth on their heads, they wore sackcloth and sat in ashes. The whole, the whole <coughs> people. And they waited, what did they wait for? They waited on God that they might truly and clearly understand his word and their history. Never had there been such a day. Never had the whole people wept. Oh yes, leaders had wept over the people. But never had the people wept because they understood the law of God and realized that they'd broken it. And because they understood their history for the first time and realized what fools they'd been. Why did it all come? Do you understand what was happening? In this recovery, the people were grasping the whole the whole idea behind it. Do you understand? They were they were as it were understanding God's word for the first time. And the whole thing was as it was just opening up before them, as far as panorama. They were beginning to understand God's word. And they were beginning to understand their own tragic history. You see? What a tremendous thing it all really was. They were all instructed, they were all so instructed, that they understood their recent history in the light of their past history. Now that's a very, very important thing. They were so instructed in the word of God that they understood the exile. You see, we haven't got it all. We've only got a little tiny portion. And as always in the Word, we're given much more of the beginning. And I don't know whether it's human or whether I ought to say it, but so often it seems to me that the person who was writing it all down as it was being got so tired at the end and he just fell off. And you often find that in, in these great speeches, these different names, Solomon includes all of them, you will find a tremendous amount at the beginning and then it tails off to just a little uh, sort of framework at the end. You'll find it here. It gets right down to King David, and then and then we just get a very very quick trace of that. But the in, the the important thing is simply this: they understood the exile, and they understood their return in the light of their past history. They went back to the beginning. They went back to Abraham. They went back to Moses. They went back to the exile. They understood the golden calf. They understood the entry into the land, then they understood the period of the judges, and so, as they went through they said, we understand. We understand our history. For the first time, we understand. Do you see? Now, <clears throat> that's all what we find in these chapters. Then, in chapter 9, we find a great covenant made. That's a wonderful covenant. I love the covenants that they made because they were so thorough. They went to their statutes, their ordinances, they committed themselves to the law of God, they renewed the whole covenant. They went right through the times, the ordinances, everything. You see. Now, what do we learn from this? We learn this. In every movement of the Holy Spirit for recovery, it is essential that we understand God's word. We understand and that we understand his eternal purpose as the governing factor in everything. We understand it. We ought to be able to say, every one of us, if we are by the grace of God in such a movement of the Spirit, we should be able to say, what is the purpose of God? We should be able to have some understanding of the Word of God. We should have an understanding of our time. We should be able to understand God's dealings with his people so that we understand his dealings with us. We should so understand God's word, we should so understand God's purpose, we should so understand God's dealings with his people through the ages, that we understand how we, in our age and generation, are related to it. We are only a continuation. We should understand do things. Now, you see, this is the, 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 the tragedy of today. You have hundreds of Christians and many dear, beloved brothers and sisters who have really studied. They've studied the Bible, and yet when you speak with them, really and truly, they have hardly any real idea of what the thing's about. 
They know there's verses here, and they could preach a message on a verse there. They know there are verses back here, and they can preach a message on a verse there. But if you say, what is the meaning of Abraham? We'll just look at you all, faith. Is that all Abraham means, faith? What is the meaning of Abraham? What is the meaning of the Exodus? What is the meaning of the tabernacle? What is the meaning of the temple? What is the meaning of the monarchy? What is the meaning of these things? We should know. Someone said to you, what is the church? You ought to understand what the church is. You ought to be able to see what the church is. What is God's eternal purpose? You should be able to say, what is God's eternal purpose? You may not be able, of course, to write a great theological treatise on it, but you ought to be able, almost intuitively, to be able to put your finger upon the thing. See what that means? In other words, we should have an intelligent, a spiritually intelligent understanding of God's Word. Not as a kind of textbook for preaching, and not as a kind of collection of texts for gospel messages. Nor as a kind of uh, a book where we can get systems of doctrine out of, systems of truth out of. We ought to know the Word of God as God's letter to us. God's revelation to us. We ought to handle it with reverence. Be careful how we speak. We ought to know what is the theme why is there a tree of life? Can you tell me what the meaning of the tree of life is? Why is there a tree of life at the beginning and a tree of life at the end? Why is there a garden at the beginning and a city at the end? See? We should know these things. What is the meaning of it? Here we have a Bible. God has given us his, his word. And everything depends upon his word. In every movement of recovery, it is absolutely essential that we understand the word of God. Not in bits and pieces. Not just for a devotional. Oh, don't get me wrong. Obviously, the Word of God is there for our encouragement and help and comfort and consolation. But it's not just like the daily life. You know, a little thing that you turn up for help each day and guide. It's not just that. Many people absolutely prostitute the Bible. The only word that they prostitute it. By using it as a kind of funny little textbook. And at the end, what have they got? They don't know. They know it personally, in the sense that they can say, Oh, cast thy bread upon the water, and after many days she'll come back to me. Oh, that helped me in such such a year, and so on. Well, that's wonderful. That's personal experience. But can you please tell me what lies behind all that? You see, we ought to understand the Word of God in an intelligent way. The Bible hasn't just been given to us so we can get a few little texts down again when we're in trouble being given to us that we might have a spiritually intelligent understanding of our calling and vocation. We understand where we're going to and where we've come from and how we're getting there. That's what the Bible for. It is for our instruction. Now, if we are going to be in any way uh, uh, brought into such a move of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to find this, that one of the most elementary things about it is the Holy Spirit's not going to let any of us get away. He's going to bring down all these things to us. And those of us who are responsible, we've got to see that as far as lies within us, that everyone, the Word of God, as it were, is given distinctly, and the senses put into it, so that people are able to understand what it is. Do you see? How important that all is. Really, do you know, it would be saving an awful lot of trouble if people understood the Word of God. Oh. Things sometimes Christians come out. Oh, one wishes they kept their mouths shut and hid their ignorance. But do you know how suddenly something comes out and we say something which is the word of God would turn it upside down in an instant if they knew it. There's something there of every single situation which can be interpreted by all that God is doing. So we ought we just ought to understand that. We ought also to understand church history. We ought to understand church history. Very few Christians have any understanding of church history. Therefore, they don't understand what God is doing in our generation because they don't understand church history. We ought to understand church history. Not as something dry. It's not dry. It's very silly. Uh, if once you really get down to it, you really start to study church history and you will begin in the end to understand under the Holy Spirit's headship if you put yourself under the anointing, you will begin to understand where we come in. You will begin to discern amazing pattern in church history, which is absolutely typified in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. You will find it. No mistake about it. There. There. It traces the whole thing through. You will find it. You see, there's an amazing battle on over these 
entry for the recovery of something which had been terribly lost. The battle is, is on. Bit by bit, part by part, something's been recovered, something's been uncovered, something's been established, you see, and then only once again, to as it were, die down. But, you see, the whole point is that the Holy Spirit's in charge of this operation. What the Lord said to Zechariah by the prophet, not by mind, nor by power, but by spirit. This great mountain, before thee, O Zerubbabel, shall become a plain. Shall be brought forth with shoutings of grace, grace unto him. Do you understand? See, that was lovable. So you see, we've got, we can bring that over to us now. Holy Spirit's in charge. It's not by night, or what how we won't be able to do that. The Holy Spirit's doing something. And if we look through church history, we shall understand our own recent history in the light of past history. We shall understand it in the light of God's Word. Do you see how important it is? And I also want you to note the immediate response that there was in the people's hearts to God's word. They covenant to give themselves immediately. They seal themselves right to it. And the names of every single person who, who wrote their signature under the covenant is there. You see all that they covenant to? They covenant themselves under a curse and an oath. What a terrible thing. In other words, if they break this covenant, they're cursed. What an abandonment to the word of God. What an abandonment to their history. See? They understood how they spoke of the great and terrible God, the great in love and faithful and compassion. They understood it all. Isn't it wonderful that right back there, literally a millennium or, or two ago, a man called Ezra understood the change in Abraham's name. And in his prayer was able to say, Abraham, whom thou gavest the name of Abraham. He understood church history. <laughs> Old Testament church history. He understood it. See? He got the thing clear. I know. Do you know, I'm quite sure that I went round and asked many people out there. Can you tell me why the Lord changed Abraham to Abraham? Everyone would be blank. There was tremendous significance in every point in the Word of God, you see. See, they got it. They got hold of the thing. They responded. They gave themselves to it. Well, everything else started to come out then. They committed themselves to God's law, to his word, to his statutes, to his ordinances, to his festivals, to the jubilee year. They said, in the jubilee year, Lord, we'll give up all else. Anyone who's in debt to us, we'll let them go free. Slaves amongst us, we'll pack off home. Say, so you can go. They covenanted them. Now, you know, that means a lot. See, it's coming down to practical points now, is it? Well, very well, they all rejoice and weep over the word of God. But when you've got... Uh, a big house, and, uh, and you've been brought up with lots of slaves all around you. My word, two years hence, it's Jubilee year, and you've got to say goodbye to half of them. Um, uh, you, you might begin to realize how very difficult it was, you see? And so we could say all other kinds of things, too, that it came down to practice, you see. Then they said, tithes, oh Lord, it's the tithes. We will give you the tithes. All the tithes will give. Then they said, the first fruits, yes, Lord, the first fruits, everything, everything. And they went through the whole list of all the first fruits they were going to give the Lord, from the wine and the grain, the oil, right down to the sheep and everything else they were going to give the first fruits to the Lord. But do you see what had happened? They covenanted. They understood their history. And they said, now that we understand, we understand. The house of God is the heart. The city is the heart. We understand. We will promise, we will enter into a covenant with the Lord that we will never forsake the house of God. Listen, they said, we will never forsake the house of God. We will always own our allegiance to this spot. Then, you know, a very wonderful thing followed straight on, and a thing that most people overlook. The first verse, chapter 11, what does it say? It says that they cast lots. One man in ten was to live in Jerusalem. Now, do you know what that means? Think about it. They cast lots amongst all the people. One man in ten. That is a tenth of the nation. Now, what does that mean? Well, think. It means that Jerusalem is a tithe. You see, Jerusalem is the first fruit. One in ten. They promised to give all the other tithes to the Lord. Now they said that the city itself is first now, we have to stop there, but you will understand quite a lot of the book of Revelation if you understand it in that light. And everyone who offered willingly 
freely offered himself. Well, they blessed them. <laughs> That's rather funny, I think. And the others, their, their lot came to them, but they blessed those that willingly offered the people. Blessed. You see, not everyone wanted to live in the city. They knew that there, there wasn't quite so nice living in the city in those behind the walls than being out in a nice little olive orchard. Uh, with all the countryside around you and the rest of it. Most of them wanted to live out, out. They didn't want the, the restrictions and the limitations of the city. So they had to cast lots rather a sad thing, isn't it? But the point behind all is this one tenth, and those who were in the office were, were the population of the city. Of course, we understand now it was pure petty place. That's all in the background, it's clear. But from those, a tenth. A tide, a glorious tide. And then you see the people see what do they see? They see that the temple and the city are the heart and the heart of everything. Well, they see the city and the temple as the heart of their uh, ministry and their vocation. Now, that's a big point, you see. They just see that. Our vocation is the people. Well, that's nearly the end of Nehemiah. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 is just the dedication of the walls. I don't think we have to spend any time on dedication, except it's rather lovely in one way. But Ezra leads one company right down that side of the wall, and Nehemiah leads the company right down the other. The two great leaders of the two last stages lead the companies right down. Well, they sang and they sang and they sang, until at last they met just in front of the house of God on the wall. And there they had a great time of worship and praise. The two companies met together. They encircled the city with praise. So the words of Isaiah came true. Thy wall salvation, thy gates praise. They shall sing. Do you remember how Isaiah said? They shall come back and they shall sing one another. They were literally fulfilled in those days. That's more greatly to be fulfilled in days to come. They sang on the wall. Covered walls, and the whole population just one great, great choir of voices. A wonderful thing, really, when you think of it. This was the end. But of course, and this has given me a great problem, actually. <coughs> Nehemiah, for some strange reason, doesn't end there. And I've been telling you that the dedication of the walls was in the 13th chapter. But unfortunately, I found that the dedication of the walls was not in the 13th chapter, it was in the 12th chapter. And the 13th chapter just didn't seem to make sense. It was all to do with rather strange reforms. The first thing was over a mixed marriage. What did they suddenly discover? After all this reading of the word, after all this study of the word, someone suddenly discovered that somewhere in Deuteronomy it said, no Ammonite, no Moabite shall enter into the congregation of the Lord's house until such as, uh, uh, no generation, sorry, of an, of an Ammonite or a Moabite shall ever enter into the congregation of the Lord's house. Oh, Nehemiah, we must be obedient. And they gave themselves, and it says the whole congregation separated themselves. No foreigner was ever allowed within the precincts of the Lord's house from that day. Do you know what happened? I think Nehemiah must have smiled, even though he should have first turned the other cheek. But he suddenly discovered that his old friend, Tobiah, was an Ammonite. And that simply meant that old Tobiah was now once and forever excluded. He led all the opposition, and because uh, he had married a Jewess, and his son had married in, uh, we, are, we understand some alliance with the high priest. The high priest had given him a room in the courts of the Lord's house. And Nehemiah, it says, and you read it, it's rather one, it's all in the first person, it's his own account, he said, I went there. And I took hold of the buyer's household furniture and stuff, and I threw it out. <laughs> I threw it out. And I cleansed the room. In other words, he looked upon it as thoroughly defiled. Blood is sprinkled, sprinkled over it. And the thing was sanctified again. The bile, and that was the end of the bile. He was out. But then time, they, 
Nehemiah found the tithes weren't coming. All the Levites had gone back because they weren't being looked after. They were supposed to be living as it were by faith, but no one was helping. So they found that they couldn't live at all. So they went back to the land. So Nehemiah said, come on, come on. You all come back. Something's wrong here. And he put faithful men over the treasury. And he told the people what he thought. Uh, if you read carefully, that's all that the people covenanted. Oh, they said, we covenanted it so soon. We broke the covenant. The time. Then the Sabbath. Well, what was happening in the Sabbath? Well, these merchants from Tyre were bringing in their fish. Fish stalls. And they were just inside the gate. On the Sabbath. And of course, as Paul Nehemiah said, if the Lord's people would be buying for them, then it would all go out. But the Lord's people are going out to buy. So he took them all to task about it. And he said, shut the gates on the Sabbath. Sunset. On Friday, the gates are shut. Then what did the Tyrian traders do? They set their stores up outside the, the, the gate, and people went out through small side gates to buy. So, if you read again, you'll find how Nehemiah went down, as it were, shook his fist at these fish uh, people, and said, look here, if you stay here another Sabbath, I'll lay hands on you. And they were never seen again from that day to this. They went. See what happened? He took the whole thing. If you come, you read it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not using slang. He said, if you come again, I'll lay hands on you. They're gone. And then, poor Nehemiah, he suddenly, and after all this covenant, what were they doing? Mixed language. And to his horror, he heard little children speaking half in the language of Ashton and half in the language of God's people. And it was terrible for me and I. Oh, he thought, all our suffering, ah, the word of God, our history, and all the instruction, and now look what they're doing. I'm afraid Nehemiah wasn't exactly kind. If you read it, as he pulled their hair out. He, he dealt with them very severely, if you see. He literally, well, he thoroughly uh, tamed them, he punished them. And he said, they all agreed, we'll end this business. But then our old friend Sam Ballot comes into the picture, and we suddenly find, now what does that mean? Sam Ballot's son, if I am right, uh, was son-in-law the high priest. He'd married the high priest's daughter. Shows it, isn't it? Where you sometimes find treachery and superficiality in high places. What had happened? And so it says another lovely little incident. Nehemiah said, evidently when everyone else agreed to separate Sandalot and And so Nehemiah said, I chased him off. So you see the aged Nehemiah running now, chasing him right out. I don't suppose he ever forgot that. What did that all teach us? Well, I want you to see that the last lesson is this, the necessity of watchfulness in the maintenance of the testimony. All this, all this had happened. All this had taken place. And now, as soon as the people covenanted, as soon as they were on the advent of the Messiah's appearance, it all begins to At this point, the original recording is reversed and about 45 seconds of the message is lost. It's a wonderful story, a wonderful marriage, apart from the, uh, a wonderful spiritual character produced here. But you see, on the one side, no sympathy. On the other side, true trust. On the one side, that which is utterly uncompromising and firm. On the other side, that which is full of love and understanding. That's the only way we shall ever get through in this question of the testimony of Jesus. These little things, what were they with? They were the rights of the Lord, weren't they? Rights. So his right to us corporately, together. Mm, nothing else. He's jealous of us. Doesn't want anything else. No one thing. Nothing like that. It was us. So membership, you know, that's half and half. All that stuff. He wants his people to be his own, his jealous. There he is. right over them. No Moabite, no Ammonite, nothing else like that in the congregation of the whole people. When I speak of the congregation, I mean, of course, the church, not the assembly. And then, Ty's what's that? His right to our money. Sabbath, his right to our time. These are only just the, the guarantee of the rest of the world, isn't it? Sabbath and tithes, what are they? 
They're only first fruits. The rest, I know, just a guarantee of fear, time, and evidence that the next is his. And his right to our very being. No false No mixed up. No getting lost. <coughs> How deceiving the we have a deception within, that's the tragedy. And you know when we listen to it, oh, how what lies it does. And that is really the tragedy. If you were to only take the word of God and look at every time it's been baptized, you will see always that we did the deception. Someone becomes deluded. Someone becomes deluded. They suddenly say, oh dear, oh dear, so that the world, the world, what the world is like, how nice the world, how, how happy the world is, how carefree. I'd like to be back. All of the reasons. We've seen them, haven't we? We've seen people have gone back and then dead. They have committed suicide. That's the only word. They are living corpses. Terrible, terrible testimony. What to? To delusion, deception. What is the root of this thing? Mixture. Just opening the door for me. That's what we need about pure penguins. That can't come in. So as we're near Mark from beginning to end, they're driving away. Like the way Oh, they're not going to, they're not going to serve you what happens. <laughs> All they can do is just simply say, it's a question of life or death. They're pure life. The question of responsibility. It's going to be pure life. Well, that's a wonderful message. We're finished here now. But at the end of Old Testament history, we now have the very advent, as far as Scripture is concerned, of the coming to Lord Jesus. With Nehemiah, the curtain comes down at the end. That's the finish of Old Testament history. Now we go back with Job and Psalms and all the other prophets. We're going to go back now and look at different parts of it. But Old Testament history is at an end. We've only got Esther, and Esther precedes Nehemiah. You see? What is it called? What are these books called? Simply, but one place. The Holy Spirit is out to recover something which has been terribly lost. He will do it. And he will do it in cooperation with however small enough that come onto that right ground. Get them onto that ground and he'll do it. All the characteristics that we find in Israel and Nehemiah will be made true. Enough. They'll be there. The Holy Spirit is in charge. He will recover. It may seem to us that the purpose of God is utterly submerged in error and ignorance and exile. It's all right. I haven't got to worry about that at all. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit's on the move and can find those that will come with him and be pliable in his hands. He'll recover the purpose of God gloriously and realize it and will bring us right up to the advent of the Lord's coming. I don't know how long we have. We may have many. We may, be, we may in future years go down in history as some queer movement, as it were, but nevertheless something the Holy Spirit did right back there in the Middle Ages, to be called then. Uh, still, the Lord will be grateful. We don't know. On the other hand, we, I think it may well be, but talking about all the time, we never know. But we're right on to, to in the end, the last phase <coughs> of the end. Of the end of the age. Maybe years ahead. So what? What have we learned? We have learned that we can't do anything ourselves. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do it alone. He does it with us. In us. Give ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of God will be realized that all hell stand together. And we shall find ourselves on the very brink of the coming of the Lord. The conditions will have been made true by his coming. And he will return. May the Lord help us to understand such a lesson.